how some things just cause us all kinds of challenges when we try to sort them out. They stretch us in all kinds of directions and sometimes they get us tied in knots and we don't know what to do. Well, you've come to the place where we try to untangle some of those knots and where we try to understand what God is saying to us. You've come to and welcome to Faith Is, the program where we allow God to stretch us in his direction and where we rise to that challenge because we believe that God is leading us in the right way and we want to go in his way. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens and I'm so glad you've joined us. We do these programs to benefit you and I think today will be as helpful as anything we've done. Now that's a pretty strong statement, so you hang on and see if that turns out to be the case. The reason I think that is because Jesus is going to teach us something that we desperately need to understand better. And I have just been amazed at what we can learn when we pay close attention to what Jesus is telling us and how we can benefit from that. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're just a regular group of people where we work real hard to follow God and do what he says, where we listen hard to what he says, and and we're probably a lot like the church you go to, as long as the church you go to follows the Bible and is committed to understanding what the Bible says and agreeing with God. You see, we have found ourselves in a time when uh, people want God to agree with them, and we want to agree with God. So I'm so glad you've joined us. And I, and I want to start out this way today here on the program, Faith Is. I want to ask you to think about what is faith? Now, if you've listened for a while, you've heard me give my working definition of faith, and I would be the first to admit it's not comprehensive and doesn't cover everything. But I've found it very helpful, and I hope you have, but I'm not going to tell you what that definition just yet. I want you to think about what is faith. How would you define it? If you were going to explain it to someone, how would you describe this rather abstract concept that the Bible talks about quite frequently, but that we sometimes have a hard time getting our arms around? So how would you describe in concrete terms to a friend who asked you, well, what is faith? Can you come up with a definition of faith? Can you come up with a definition that does not use the word faith in the definition or a form of the word faith, like faithfulness? Maybe you remember, I remember really well, the frustration. It was a good frustration, as I discovered later, but the frustration when, when the teachers at school would say, you need to come up with a definition of this word and you can't use the word or any form of the word. Well, when you thought you understood what the word meant, it was hard to find other words. And I found that a kind of a challenging assignment sometimes. And that's what I want us to think about today. Can we come up with a definition? Can you, as you sit there, as you think about this, how would you define faith if you were going to explain it to someone else? Now, you might use the word believe or belief. Faith is what I believe or is my belief. Well, what does that mean? Uh, is faith just say, any kind of belief, undefined belief? Or does faith, as we're trying to think about it from the Bible's perspective, mean that we have to include God in there some way? So does, it, does the idea of faith mean that you believe something specific or some things specific? Or does it mean that you live your life differently? 
because of that. Well, that's part of the challenge. So how would you explain faith or how would you define faith if you were trying to help your friend understand it? Now, keep in mind that while the Bible uses the word frequently, it also says in James chapter 2, verse 19, and you can look that up. I would encourage you to look it up. It's been one of those verses that once I, once I realized it was there, I, I've never gotten away from it because it explains to us that even the de- demons believe there is one God and they shudder at that reality. Or some English translations say they tremble with fear. So how does that square with your idea of belief? Is, is it enough to say, I believe there's one God? Well, no, that could be a definition of faith, but is that all there is to faith? Well, that's what we're exploring, and that's what we have explored before on this program, and I'm so glad you've joined us. If you've been here before, you know that I have suggested this working definition of faith, that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's my working definition of faith. When I come across the word faith in the Bible, I often think about that. Now, let's unpack that definition just a little bit. I don't think we've done that for a while, and we're going to talk about faith. Particularly, we want to hear what Jesus says about faith. You don't really care that much what I say about it, but I want us to begin with this kind of definition because I think it comes out of the Bible, and I think it helps us make this abstract idea of faith concrete. And that's really one of the things that I try to do. There's a lot of abstract ideas in the Bible, a lot of abstract ideas out in the world in general, but how do we make them concrete? Or sometimes we say, how do we make them practical? Well, let's think about this definition that I've suggested of faith, and you compare it with the one you've been thinking of here in just the last few minutes. I didn't come to this definition particularly quickly, But I don't remember wrestling with it a lot either. And when I came to it, it kind of resonated with me. And it's helped me as I try to live out a life of faithfulness and faith in God. So absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, let's start with that idea of absolute confidence. What I mean by that is that that we never waver when it comes to God. We never allow doubts when it comes to God. We simply refuse to doubt. And we have this kind of confidence in God's trustworthiness that we don't doubt that he is trustworthy. We never waver in that thought. We stand firmly convinced and committed to the idea that God is trustworthy. All right, so then I said absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, what do I mean by trustworthiness? Well, I think that's important for us to wrestle with because if we assume God is there to do whatever we ask him to do, then that's different than what I'm talking about with this idea of trustworthiness. What I mean is that God is trustworthy in that we can depend on God to keep his promises. Now, we have to be careful that we understand that the promises that we're thinking of here and that we're depending upon are the kind of universal promises that God gives us to all people. For example, Jesus said without equivocation, without a doubt, that the gift of the Holy Spirit would come and that he would be with us always. You probably remember the verse, even to the ends of the earth. So we have this confidence that God is trustworthy to send the Holy Spirit and he is with us. So, 
when we gather in church, and years ago I'd hear ministers say, this was a long time before I was a pastor myself, they would say, we, we need to pray that God will, will come this morning. Or you'll occasionally hear people talk about God showing up. Well, you know, if we can trust what God promised, then God is with us when we gather at church. We should not doubt that, or we should not feel obligated to beg for his presence. We can depend on him to be there. Uh, maybe the other way to think about that is, can he depend on us to be there? Now, I don't just mean physically, but I mean when we uh, actually are at church, are we actually at church, or are, or are, are our minds a million miles away? Are we so distracted by other things that we are not really there and concentrating and focusing on God and resetting our lives in God's direction? So absolute confidence means we don't doubt, we never waver in our conviction that God is trustworthy. And because God is trustworthy, we can depend on him to keep his promises. Now, there needs to be a result of that definition and that definition, if we hold to it, that results in faithful behavior. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, that means that, that we do what God says is good for us. And what I mean by that is we refuse to sin because God said sin is bad for us. So we say no to sin because it's good for us to resist temptation and sin. And it results our absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God results in faithful behavior. So we can live our lives out demonstrating that we have that kind of confidence in God. So at this point, a good and faithful pastor would say, is the Holy Spirit talking to you about anything about which you have not been faithful? Well, that's a clue. We call that a clue that God is trying to guide our lives into goodness. He corrects us for our own good. And so we need to listen and see if we are living faithful lives that demonstrate absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. All right, so now having done that, let's take a look at the gospel today, the gospel of Luke. And I want us to take a look at a specific story that's sometimes very confusing and difficult. And I will say right up front, it's challenging. I've wrestled with this a little bit more than some of the other ones. Wrestled with it because I, I was convinced there had to be something here for us. We couldn't just kind of leave it as an abstract story that Jesus told for some reason. There had to be some way that that had real specific meaning to us. And I, and I think there, it, it does. I think it, it delivers on that. And I want to help us to think about that today as we go through this, this particular story and also as we reference some of the stories that Luke tells us just prior to this one. So in Luke chapter 18, there's a story about a very persistent widow. And I want to read the story, and I'm going to read it from the Christian Standard Bible, the one I frequently use. Although I'll give you a little preview, I'm looking into another one that I'm particularly fascinated by and may begin using more. Um, not because this one is bad, but I like to use a fresh one now and then because it helps me think clearly and it keeps me from getting stuck in, in, in my own thought loop, shall we say. But anyway, Luke chapter 18, we're going to start with verse 1 
and read this story that Jesus tells. And he says right up front, it's a parable. Now, before I read it, I want to give you a couple of things to pay attention to. I don't want to just read it to go through the reading of it. I want us to listen and to think. And if you have your Bible and you open it and to look at it, look at it purposefully, even the first time through. So it's very interesting. This parable, Jesus tells them why he's telling the parable right up front. Verse 1, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. So the reason he's telling them the parable is to convince them that they need to, to keep on praying and to not give up. Now I want to frame that not give up a little bit differently. I'm no languages expert, but I can look up the, the, the information that language experts give us and it's very helpful. And I consulted other translations and many of the English translations, I think it was most of the ones I looked up, do use that phrase, not give up. But I looked back at the New King James Version and I looked at the New Revised Standard Version and I remembered this from years ago when the King James was what we used. But it, instead of that idea of not give up, those translations say we should not lose heart. So Jesus is saying, to always pray and not lose heart. So we do something specific, pray, to avoid losing heart. Now, the reason I like that idea of losing heart as opposed to not give up is because I'm pretty convinced, and maybe you are too, that people sometimes give up and they keep going through the motions. You know, inside they've given up. Maybe you've given up on your job or your spouse or your relative of one kind or another and you're still going through the motions of of having a relationship with them but you've lost heart and it's real interesting to me that we're all tempted in one way or another to lose heart all of us are but we're not quite as quick to give up because when we give up other people see that and so we go through the motions, even though we've lost heart. You might, even, you might even find yourself going to church, but you only go because you don't want to look like that person that doesn't go, or because you'd feel too guilty if you didn't go, or you fill in the blank. But Jesus here says that we are to always pray and to not lose heart, so that that means something besides just quitting because we can quit and go through the motions. Does that make sense? I hope it does because Jesus is saying, keep your heart in this. Don't, don't give in to giving up, even if it's giving up on the inside and not on the outside. And so we want to make sure that we hear him say, always pray and not lose heart. I think that's helpful. So keep that in mind as we go through the parable. That's important. There's another thing that's that's interesting that he says here. Now, the story is about an unjust judge and a widow. We'll talk about that a little bit. But in verse 6, it's very interesting. Jesus says this, listen to what the unjust judge says. Now, it's very interesting to me that, that Jesus calls attention to an unjust judge and what he says. And occasionally you might see this judge referred to as unrighteous. I think unjust is a better way to look at it because that fits the context of, of a judge's responsibility to bring about justice. 
But it's very interesting that, that Jesus says, listen to what this sorry rascal says. He doesn't make him a hero, but he says, listen to what he says. So as we read the parable, I want you to listen to what he says. And then at the end, Jesus says something very interesting. And, and when you first hear this, it's, it's kind of like, what? What's that have to do with the parable? And I think that's an important question to ask, and we want to ask that and wrestle with that. But at the very end, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He ends with a question that doesn't at first seem to relate to the parable. So I'm, I'm wrestling with this and I'm thinking, hmm, this sounds like it's totally off the wall, Jesus. Where did you come up with this? It, like, it doesn't fit the context. But then I have to ask myself, okay, but it is in the context. So what's going on here? And we need to, to think about that. And we need to consider that as we go through the parable and try to understand what Jesus is talking about. So, okay, so let's, let's read the parable. Starting in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he, and it's referring to Jesus, now he, Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a certain judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this is a parable that we, we describe as a, as a so much more than approach to what Jesus is trying to teach. He's telling us this parable, and he's comparing this unjust judge and God, and it's a so much more. God is so much more than the judge. And if the judge would do this, how much more will God do this? So we need to kind of understand that that's what Jesus is talking about here as we make this comparison. And at the end, he asks this real question that at first seems rhetorical. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? But then we, we say, now wait a minute, if it's not rhetorical, if it's concrete, what, what is it that Jesus is going to be looking for? What is it that... that he, he wants to identify in this idea of will he find faith on the earth. And, and you know, for those of us who want him to find us, we want to have whatever he's talking about. So he wants something that apparently he wants to see in us, some quality, some behavior that he wants to see in us. And we want to explore that and see what that might mean. Now, he refers to faith and so that reminds us a lot of things. And so I want us to, to kind of take a backward glance at some of the things that we've been looking at. And, and if you've been listening to the program, you've heard us talk about some of these. And, and it goes back to, um, to a number of the, of the stories that, that Jesus told in Luke. Um, a number of them were, were quite interesting. So it, 
If we go back to Luke 16, for example, we, we discover that there's a story there about a dishonest manager and how he, and we're not going to go into all the details, how he was going to lose his job but managed to secure his future by being clever in the context of that day. And, and Jesus reminded us that we need, to be, we need to be just as clever in the way we live our lives as kingdom people, not kind of underhanded behind your back the way that guy was, but we need to be alert to what's going on. And then he kind of, in the midst of that, summarizes the things at the end there that says, listen, you've got to choose who you're going to be devoted to. You're going to be devoted to God or you're going to be devoted to money. And it really sums it up that way. You cannot serve both God and money. And so Jesus makes a clear opportunity for us to make a decision. We can't love God and money. What are we going to choose? Then we see a little interlude there in the, in the telling of the story, and he talks about Pharisees and how they were lovers of money, and he reminds them again about the importance of, of doing what God asked them to do and of doing the right thing. And then that leads into the story another parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had it all. I mean, extravagant wealth. And he lived it out for all to see. And Lazarus had nothing. He had been deposited at the gate of the rich man. He was so unable to care for himself that he could not even leave from that spot. He needed help to be able to move from one place to another. So the context of the story is, here's this man, Lazarus, who has nothing and is tormented by terrible skin disease, and the rich man does nothing to help him. But when they die, Lazarus goes to what we might call paradise, goes to be with Abraham, and is promoted into a desirable place after he dies. And the, and the rich man, he goes to a place of torment. And so we remember from this story that that we're supposed to do right. And you remember the rich man says, you need to send somebody from the dead to go tell my brothers so they don't end up here like I am. And Jesus in the story explains that if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to someone that rises from the dead. And so the real point here is that we need to look at the scriptures and we need to do right. And and even with the limitations, what we might say limitations of having the prophets and, and the books of Moses, they would know what God expects and how to live right. And sometimes we, from our perspective, we look back and say, well, how could they know? Well, Jesus said they could. And I, if he says it, that's good enough for me. Now, we're so much more, uh, how should I say, blessed we benefit so much more because we have so much more of the Bible. But here Jesus is saying, even if you have this, which is what they had at that time, they could live right. And so he's saying to us, we need to decide to do right. And these stories then, they kind of build on one another. So you can't love God and money, and you need to, to demonstrate that you love God by taking care of your neighbor, and you need to do what's right because it's true what we call the Old Testament tells us clearly that we need to love God with all we got and our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus was right. They could know. Then it goes on in verse 
well, no, chapter 17, verse 1. And, and he talks about various things about the end of time. And he specifically says to the disciples that they need to forgive people if they come back and repent. And, and not just once, but you keep on forgiving them. You have grace toward them. You te- treat them graciously. Around our church, we say, love God generously and people graciously. And Jesus says you need to forgive them. And in response to that, and you may remember we talked about this, the disciples kind of in, in an exclamation of exasperation, they say, Lord, increase our faith. Like, who has enough faith to do that much forgiving? Well, that's a good question because forgiveness is a great idea until you have to forgive. It's a wonderful idea until there's a person standing right in front of you that needs your forgiveness. And you have been genuinely hurt by what they did, harmed by what they did. You've lost something by what they did or didn't do. And now you have to forgive them. Great idea until you have to forgive. But Jesus says you need to forgive. Then he goes on to tell a story about a servant and his responsibilities to the master. And he sums that up by saying, nobody is surprised that the master expects the servant to do what he's expected to do. Servants just need to do their duty. And Jesus says, that's the way we need to think of ourselves. We just need to do our duty. So you all who worry about forgiveness, Jesus says, you just need to do your duty. When I say this is your duty as a follower of me, you need to do your duty. It's not about a quantity of faith or, or anything like that. It's about faith being lived out by doing our duty. Now, how does that fit with your definition of faith? You see, what we're getting at, Jesus is kind of building some of these things as we go along. We, we love God, not money. We do what's right because we know from the scriptures what to do right. And that means we do our duty even when it's hard, like forgiveness. We don't back down. We don't back up. We don't cave in. We just do it. So Jesus seems to be building this kind of, how should we say, bibliography of stories that we can then use to begin to say, okay, so this is what it means to live a life of faith. Well, then in verse 11, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and he comes across a village, and he meets 10 lepers outside the village. And the long and the short of the story is that these lepers are in desperate need of help because they have a disease that cuts them off from their families and from everything. They are completely isolated, and they live outside the city because they have this terribly deadly, contagious disease. And they ask Jesus to have mercy on them, and Jesus' response to them is, go show yourself to the priest which you would do if you were healed, but they hadn't been healed when Jesus said that. He just says, go do it. And lo and behold, they do. They go, they do what Jesus says, and as they're going, the scriptures say, they are cleansed. It's really fascinating. And while they were going, verse 14 says in Luke chapter 17, and while they were going, they were cleansed. Clearly, if they hadn't gone, would they have been cleansed? Well, we'll never know the answer to that because they did. And so what's important to us there is that we notice what they did because one of them comes back and gives glory to God for his healing. And Jesus says, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you or 
made you well or healed you. And we understand from this passage what that means is that his faith was demonstrated and visible because he obeyed what Jesus said to do. And he lived that out in his life. So he went at Jesus' command to show himself to the priest, and lo and behold, he's healed. And so the lesson for us is when Jesus tells us to do something, it's good for us because we benefit. Could it be that, and yes, I think it could be, could it be that our lives are not made whole because we refuse to do our duty and to do what's right and to put God first and to do what the lepers did, obey God's command? Could that be a secret that's not a secret at all? But sometimes we don't want to face up to that. Could it be what you and I need to put into our lives more? We need to do our duty and do what God commands and put him first and let him worry about the results while we're on our way. And I don't know what where you might be on your way to, but wherever you're on your way to, God might surprise you with more, more than you ever imagined possible. Wouldn't that be nice? Absolutely it would be. Well, we've talked a lot and we haven't even gotten to the parable we started out with, but we'll get there. I just think if we're going to answer the question, Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? We have to think about what he's been talking about when it comes to faith in these previous stories. And we need to add all that together so that we can come to some concrete understandings of how we live lives of faith. And when we look at this parable, I think it begins to all come together in a way that might surprise us, but will help us. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is... And we're going to take a break because we all need it now. We're going to refresh ourselves, and I'll be back. Don't go away. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us. We've been talking about faith rather specifically today some rather specific behaviors that Jesus asked us to do, and we're going to talk some more about that. And before we get into that, I almost always forget to suggest that if you find these programs helpful, would you please share them with a friend? Whether you listen on the broadcast every week, or if you listen by podcast, would you share it with somebody and, and encourage them? Because we want to help people, and that's the reason that I do these and our church does these. The idea is to help people have faith and to explore what it means for God to stretch us in his direction and for us to respond to that as faithful people. So if you don't mind, I mean, I'm not twisting your arm here, but it seems reasonable that if you find it useful, you might mention it to somebody else and let them know that there's a program that helps you and that might help them because we want to help each other follow God, walk together all the way home to heaven. Well, we've been talking about faith, and we've talked about some of the specific things that were mentioned in the stories that Luke tells us from the life of Jesus as he's traveling on his way to Jerusalem and the events of Holy Week. And we've come to the story of what sometimes people call the persistent widow, and she was definitely persistent. We read the story together earlier, and now we're going to circle back and talk about what are the specific things that we can learn from her story. And it's important for us to explore some of these things. So let's, let's kind of jump in. And it's, it's really a, a remarkable thing. I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, did Jesus tell the story this concisely? Did he give them more detail? And, and by the providence of God, he, we didn't need more detail than that. Or did he tell them just this way? Uh, it's really quite fascinating how much we can get out of just a, such a short, short story. Well, a parable, as you know, is a story that they would understand, the people of Jesus' day would understand, and they would be able to, because of what they understand from the story, then learn something they didn't quite get. So Jesus was connecting the known with the not yet known. He was connecting what they would have understood with what he wants them to understand. And in the same way, he does that for us. Now, we have to work a little harder because we don't know that context quite like they did. They lived there. It's like we know our context. We don't have to have lots of things explained to us. We just know that's the way it is. But in looking back at the parables, we need a little help sometimes. And so that's why we study and that's why we try to learn. So the setup to this is there's a judge in a town and the judge did not fear God or respect people. And that's mentioned more than once in the story. So it's very important to get that. No fear of God, 
no respect for people. What kind of an arrogant, sorry rascal is this? Well, we don't need to go there because that's not the point. But it is kind of interesting the way Jesus frames it. Here's a guy who doesn't care. And watch what he does. See, that's the idea of this is a how much more story, a how much more parable. This guy's this way. How much more is God the way we need him to be or maybe even expect him to be or the way he reveals himself to us to be? So there's a judge in a certain town. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. And a widow in that town keeps coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Or some English translations say against my accuser. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus makes this contrast between this powerful judge and this widow who is among the least powerful in that community. The widows had nobody to stand up for them. They had no one to advocate for them. In some respects, you could say that widows were among the most at-risk people in the ancient world. They were helpless. Now, I know being a widow today is not easy. I'm not suggesting that. But being a widow in those days was much more difficult. Whether we like it or not, life for women in the ancient world depended on their connection to a household, to some man, either a husband, or if they were not yet married, they lived in their father's house. When the, their husband died, that left them without a connection, and so it made them really at risk and really in a most difficult spot. Sometimes we know historically that widows might even be sold into slavery to satisfy a debt that their husband, who had now died, had incurred. So it was really a difficult thing to be a widow. Now, you have to admire this particular woman because she stood up for herself. She didn't have anybody to go to bat for her, nobody to go to the judge on her account. But she stood up for herself, and she did it quite effectively. And she did not stop. It, it's very clear in here that um, the, the judge recognizes that she's not going to stop. Uh, it says she keeps pestering me in one point. And, and so even though... It's very interesting the way the judge says this, and this is what Jesus is. Listen to what he says. So listen to this. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Now, some people have suggested, does that mean that God responds to nagging? Well, that's not what we see here at all. So no, that's, God isn't interested in our nagging. When we think of nagging, we think of something negative, and understandably so. This is not what she was doing. She was persistent in asserting her rightful claim to the one person, the judge, who could do what's right and give her justice. And it's interesting the way the, the judge frames this. I mean, it's pretty, pretty smooth the way it says it in our English translations, most of them, that, that he doesn't want to be worn out or worn down by her. But people who study the language carefully, they say, what's really going on here is the, the uh, idea of a boxing match. And the, the judge doesn't want this woman to give him a black eye. Now, I don't know that Jesus is at all suggesting that she might come up to him and smack him upside the head. That's not what I'm suggesting. There's no indication that he would. But what it's saying is that clearly this, this woman's advocacy was having an effect on the judge. And 
Clearly, the way Jesus tells the story is meant to get our attention and maybe make us smile a little bit because nobody would ever think that if you walked up to the judge and gave him a black eye that he would rule in your favor. So we get the kind of the idea of what's going on here that the judge is finally assenting to the woman's claim and giving her justice. So then Jesus goes on to say, now that you've heard what the judge said, consider God. Now won't God help his people who cry out to him day and night? You know, won't God, don't you know more about God? And isn't his character better than the character of an unjust judge? And won't he come? Will he delay in helping? And Jesus says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Now, this idea of God hearing his elect who cry out to him reminds us of a very interesting scene from the book of Revelation. Now, sometimes people say, book of Revelation, they get all shook up and scared. Well, the book of Revelation should be a great comfort to God's people, not a book of fear. Because the book of Revelation says that when, it, when push comes to shove, Jesus is standing up for us and he's going to stop evil and deliver us from all of that. In fact, when we pray, deliver us from evil, that's what Jesus does in the book of Revelation, delivers us from evil. So don't let that book scare you. Okay, just, just never let anybody tell you about the book of Revelation in a way that causes you fear. But here's a very interesting scene. It's in the sixth chapter. And you may remember the book of Revelation talks about seven seals that, that need to be opened. And the lamb identified in the book of Revelation as Jesus, the lamb, opens the seven seals. The fifth seal is opened in Revelation 6, verse 9. Let me read that for you. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now that's both a chilling and a revealing and added to that a challenging scene. And here Jesus recognizes these people who had been martyrs because they believed in him crying out for justice, and he assures them that they would get it. Very similar parable, parable or parallel, easy for me to say, parallel to the Luke story, because here's a widow who's helpless. Here are these martyred saints who are helpless, dependent upon the justice of Jesus to make the wrongs right, and he assures them it'll be okay. So when Jesus tells this story in Luke, he's saying, Look at the unjust judge. How much more will God do for you? So that's what we need to kind of keep in mind in that context of that God will help his people. But then here's where Jesus asked this question that I said at first glance seems entirely out of context. Jesus says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Now, what's going on here? Well, at the beginning, Jesus tells us he's telling us the story for two reasons, so that we will pray and not give up, or as I said, not lose heart, because I think that's a better sense of what's going on here. And it means makes more sense to us, means more in our context, that we don't lose heart. We don't, we don't stop pursuing that which is important and right and just, and that we don't stop doing what God has called us to do. We press on. We don't end up going through the motions just to look like we're doing the right thing, but we don't lose heart. Our heart is still in it, shall we say. And so then Jesus says, will he find faith on the earth? All right, so what's going on here? So what does Jesus mean by prayer? It's a kind of an important question when we look at that. And I wrestled with that. And you know, we talk about prayer in lots of different ways, and that's okay. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Sometimes I try to, to pin it down to something that I can say it's this and not this and not this and not that. But it's, it's many things. And so I began to think, well, in the context of the story, if Jesus is saying that we need to pray always, then, and then he tells this story that doesn't necessarily seem connected to prayer, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about this widow's continuing confidence to bring her appeal to the judge for justice. And so Jesus is saying to us, we need to continue to bring our appeal to God and to continue to have confidence in his trustworthiness. You see the connection of my definition of faith here? You see, Jesus is saying that we keep coming to God and expressing our absolute confidence in his trustworthiness to do what he says he will do. Now, I don't, I don't think this is at all what he means, and I don't want to be trite by this, but I think it's important to point out. He's not saying keep praying because you didn't get the bicycle you asked for when you were a kid at Christmas. That's not what he's talking about, okay? But when God has obligated himself to bring justice, we are invited to keep pursuing that justice. That makes sense? I hope it does, because God doesn't want us to, to give up on him. And he says he'll, he'll grant this justice swiftly. And people wrestle with that idea of swiftly. And, and I, I think it's a fair question. In Revelation, he says that he will bring about the justice for the martyrs that are waiting for that. And, and we need to kind of keep in mind that the swiftly may have a contextual idea. It's not going to happen in three minutes from now necessarily, but when it happens, it'll be resolved and it will seem like, oh, good, it's done. And so maybe there's a sense of that. We have, we've all lived our lives with things like that that we anticipated, and then when it was done, it was done, and that was okay. So I think that's part of the context we need to keep in mind there. And so the widow always petitioned the judge, and she wasn't discouraged in doing that. She didn't lose heart. She didn't give up. But even more than that, her heart was in it. And it seems to me that God is here giving us not just permission, but an expectation that we will hang in there with him, and we will wrestle with him, we will struggle with him, we will pursue him no matter what. See, the unjust judge finally acted, and Jesus says God will do that even more. And so when we pursue justice in our lives, and almost all of us can think of legitimate situations 
where from our perspective, it didn't turn out right. We did not receive justice. And so we forgive. We talked about that earlier. We forgive. But can we also keep asking God to make that wrong thing right? Now, in the parable, the judge did. And Jesus says, God will that much more. Now, I can't promise, because I don't see that in the text, that God is going to make those wrong things right in this life. Boy, I wish he would. Don't you? Of course we do. But I can promise that God will one day make the wrong things right. Now, we also need to remember that we hear a lot of calls in our time for justice. We demand justice. We want justice for this and justice for that. Well, when you come in this context where the woman was seeking justice and it was apparent that she legitimately had a claim because the judge satisfied that claim, we need to make sure that when we are asking God to correct a wrong, to bring about justice, that we don't fall into so much of the trap of our world around us of actually crying out for vengeance rather than justice. We want to get those people and make them pay. Well, that's not justice as it's being described here. That's vengeance. If we're going to follow this pattern that Jesus has, we would forgive those people and at the same time ask God to make the wrong right not by crushing those people or demanding something from them, but somehow bringing about rightness to the wrongness of the situation. So we need to make sure that when we cry out to God, we're, we're on good ground with that. The other thing that, that seems really striking to me is that God seems to want us to have this conversation. He doesn't discourage us from pouring out our hearts to him and saying, but God, what about? But God, what about this? But God, what about that? Apparently, he wants us to not lose heart and to not give up on him. Now, that I find very fascinating because I, I don't think that we want to keep coming to God and asking him to, to give us a million dollars, although we'd all take it. I get that. So do you. I don't think he's asking us to, to come to him for our own aggrandizement, shall we say. But he is saying that when there are legitimate things that need to be made right, I don't want you to give up on me doing that. When you have a legitimate claim, I want you to cry out to me and I want you to talk to me about that. Yes, I want you to forgive the people involved, but if there's something that, that God can do to help you, then doesn't it make sense that we ask him to do that? So if you've suffered a loss and it was a result of someone and you know that it really is not going to be made right, maybe you know because of the circumstances that it can't be made right for one reason or another. That doesn't mean to limit God. That's just facing the realities of, of the world he made. Maybe in spite of that, that God can do something in your heart and your life to make it right and to resolve that. And maybe that's the process of us saying to God, like the widow persistently, God, I forgive these people, but the hole is still there. The damage was still done. Can you heal that in my life? Maybe there's a legitimate claim that God needs to provide something for you. I don't know the specifics of the circumstances, but I do know that it's fascinating that when Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth, he says that in the context 
of a woman who had enough confidence in the unjust judge to keep pursuing justice. He did that in the context of saying the parable was was for us so that we would always pray and not lose heart. Can we take from that the encouragement that Jesus gives us to do that? Sometimes I, I think a lot of us are kind of tempted to just stuff those things and say, well, I just got to get over it. Well, sometimes we do. That's true. But maybe getting over it involves having this robust conversation with God that tells him exactly what we think about it and how we feel about it and says to him, can you bring about justice? Can you make this wrong right? And let him answer the question. Have you ever read the Psalms? Read some of those and the laments of other places in the scriptures where God seems to welcome our conversation. And maybe in having that conversation, we are demonstrating confidence that we're not losing heart in that he will one day make all these things right. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe at the end of time, I don't know. But I just find it fascinating that God seems to inviting to, to be inviting our wrestling here. While we do our duty, like we talked about with this forgiveness idea, that we increase our faith by just doing our duty, we do what's right, the way the rich man and Lazarus wrestled with that, and the rich man didn't do right, but he found out he needed to do right, and he could do right by following what the scriptures say. We find out from the stories that Jesus told that we've got to love God more than money. In fact, we can't love God and money. We find out from the story of the lepers that, that we find healing when we obey God's commands. So wouldn't it be fascinating if some of us who are wrestling with real challenges in our lives, sometimes real challenges that make us want to just dismiss God and walk away, but you haven't yet, that's good, hang on. But wouldn't it be interesting if what God is saying to us is that I want you to hang in there and I want you to talk to me about this. I want you to tell me how you really feel, not what you think I want to hear. <laughs> that's it. Does that strike you as interesting? Even a little comical that, and, and we all do it, don't we? We tell God what we think he wants to hear instead of what we want to really say. When God knows what we really want to say. But wouldn't it be amazing that if in the saying to God and the contending with God over these things, in the expressing to God by our coming to him and saying, God, I need your help with this. I can't do this without it. I need you to restore this. I need you to make this right. That in the process of expressing that kind of confidence and that, ex that expectation, that that crying out to God, which the widow did repeatedly to the unjust judge, that we are actually obeying God's command like the leper did when the lepers left and went to show themselves to the priest? Wouldn't it be amazing that if we could get honest with God about some of those things and we might discover in that honesty a level of healing in our lives we didn't know was possible? Now, it's also possible God will fix things. That's what happened in the, in the story, in the parable. The judge ruled in her favor and satisfied her claim and her accuser or adversary was made to do what was right regarding her. Wouldn't it be amazing if that God not only healed our challenges and we have them, but that if in some instances he surprised us by 
providing for us what we, what we never could have imagined having, that he would give to us something or someone do for us in our health, in our relationships, in something that we could have never imagined happen, but it's a result of our contending with him and always praying and not losing heart. You see, not losing heart is not only hanging in there with God, but it's trusting God. It's pursuing God. It's not dismissing God. It's saying to God, wait a minute, as I understand what's going on here, this is something you should be able to help with. That's what the martyrs did in the parallel story in Revelation. They cried out to God. And God said, hang on. He gave them a white robe and said, hang on. Rest a little while. It'll all be taken care of. Maybe he wants to say that to you in your life. Maybe he wants to say that to you in response to your willingness to pray and to hang on to God, to present your claim to God, to be honest in how you feel with God, and to never give up on God. Sometimes we think we have to say to God what he wants to hear so he'll respond to us the way we want to. What if he wants to hear what we really want to say so he can respond to us in the way we need it most? See, I think that's faith. I think this woman in this parable demonstrated faith, and that's what Jesus is looking for. And when he comes back, don't we want him to find us being that kind of people? The kind of people who will wrestle with all of this and who will pray and who will trust God and who will contend with him over all of these things and trust him to do for us and in us what only he could do. Well, I had planned to get to 10 things. I didn't get there today. Maybe this is more important. I I can save them for next time. Maybe I'll have 10 more things. But I hope you will have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we'll talk more next week.